About 200 years ago, something extraordinary happened. For the first time, probably in human history, there was what we call intensive economic growth. That is to say that the amount of wealth that was created in a society exceeded the rate of population growth. And we started to see living standards rise. This process started, as I said, about 200 years ago, and it's commonly referred to as the Industrial Revolution. Joining me today is Martin Hutchinson, the author of a very good book, Forging Modernity, which talks about why this happened, why it happened where it did, and what lessons we can learn. Martin, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be with you. Tell me, the Industrial Revolution, we all know that it started in Northwestern Europe, in, in, in Britain. Why did it start there? And why did it start when it started? <coughs> well, there were a number of factors you needed in order to have one, to have an Industrial Revolution. I mean, some of them are sort of obvious. You needed a level of individual freedom that many of the Asian societies didn't have and that Europe in the Middle Ages didn't have. I mean, even in the 18th century, uh, the eastern half of the Holy Roman Empire still had served them. Uh, you needed the rule of law, which meant not only that there were laws, but that people obeyed them. Uh, Britain, to some extent, had that since medieval times. I mean, there's a chap called Sir John Fortescue, who wrote in 1470, excited about how good the British rule of law is and how kings that are governed by laws are much better than the French, who all starve, whereas the British are fat and happy. Well, actually, I think the British were fat and happy at that stage because the um, population had declined after the Black Death, and so everybody had lots of land and resources. But the rule of law didn't really work properly until the monarch and the, his friends couldn't rig it. And there's no question that the Tudors rigged the rule of law. All sorts of people got hauled off to the gallows for, you know, things that wouldn't normally be considered crimes. And uh, it was only <coughs> after the uh, Civil War or the, uh, the pushback against the early Stuarts, which was then followed by the Civil War, that you had a rule of law that was actually solid. In other words, we're not in the nobility, but ordinary people could um, sue and have some chance of winning even against the nobility. And that was something that England got after 1660 and really nobody else had. And to some extent, England had it during the interregnum, but even then, uh, Cromwell was a bit heavy handed. But there, there were, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you can't. There, there were some societies that, and you sort of slightly touch on this, came tantalizingly close. That the Dutch, you could almost say, had a early version of the Industrial Revolution, but it didn't quite take off. Perhaps would that be perhaps because we had access in Britain to fossil fuel, to coal, whereas the Dutch had to try to make do with with peat and wind power. Why, why did the Dutch nearly get there but not quite get there? Well, one thing I think. <coughs> I mean, one of the dozen or so reasons why we got it is because, as you say, we had access to fossil fuels and our coal was cheaper than everybody else's coal. Uh, two reasons. One, we had a lot of it. And second, we'd started using it for domestic heating very early on or, or, and cooking. 
um, we started using coal around 1560 in London because the wood supplies were running out. It's a fairly small island and um, you need wood to build the navy. And so wood for domestic fires, particularly around London, which is a, quite a large city even then, <coughs> um, started to get expensive, whereas shipping coal down from Newcastle was cheaper. But of course, once you're using coal, um, it gets cheaper because people figure out better ways to, to mine coal and to um, make it accessible and eventually to drain the coal mines, which we'll come on to. So yes, Britain had an advantage with coal, but it's not a huge advantage because the Dutch had coal deposits that were being used in the Ruhr, which is only about what a, you tell me, but it's about a hundred miles upstream from Holland mm -hmm. and very easy transportation, which is the key in 1700 is getting it from A to B if it's something heavy like coal. It's very difficult, but shipping it down the line's easy enough. And um, so there's a question of everybody's tariffs. The Holy Roman Empire had 1800 states and therefore 1800 sets of tariffs. So they'd have had to do a bit of negotiation, but they could have got it. Um, I think the two main reasons why uh, the Netherlands didn't get the Industrial Revolution were firstly, they had a horrible period, 1672 to 1713, of which they were war, at war almost continuously. Uh, Louis XIV decided he wanted to take out the Netherlands. He didn't succeed, but he got darn close. And because of that, their national debt went up to a very high level. And then you not only got the costs of that debt, but you also got it um, a society of rentiers who were living off national debt, not going out and finding companies. And then the other thing is they got an intermediate technology, which is to some extent water power, which Britain had as well, but also windmills, which Britain didn't make huge use of. But they were from about 1600 onwards, using windmills for all sorts of industrial processes that would have been done by steam power in Britain. And, you know, uh, grinding um, corn and so on. And uh, so the advantage to them of switching to coal and steam just wasn't that great. They already had a technology that worked. So the, the English in the 1600s have a series of internal political changes, a, a lot of upheaval, but it does away with a lot of the old monopolies. Even though you have a restoration, the monarch that is restored to the throne doesn't have the sort of overbearing arbitrary power that um, compared with continental European monarchs. And this you say is a sort of essential prerequisite for some of the changes that then allow specialization exchange and, and, and suddenly late 1700s whoosh, you get this, this sort of great, great takeoff. Um, is that a fair sort of summary? Yes, I think that's a decent summary. I mean, I, <clears throat> I do think the restoration period, 1660 to 88, even though there wasn't that much industrialization going on at that stage, I do think that's the point at which Britain diverged from the rest of Europe for two reasons. One was the scientific revolution. Bacon had said in 1620, um, his process of inductive reasoning, where you uh, figure out a theory, then test it, 
then see the results and change your theory and flip back between the two. Well, that's awfully powerful if what you're trying to do is build a new steam engine or something, mm -hmm. because that's actually the way you do it, is trial, trial and, error. and error and move slowly forwards. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks and previous scientists had sort of had theories come to them by God and had not tested and refined in the same way that Bacon suggested. So from 1620, that was available to everybody. He published in Latin and it was published in Amsterdam. Uh, but then the other thing that followed on from that is we got the Royal Society and the Royal Society, while it sort of collapsed into Whig somnolence about 1700, nevertheless, those first 40 years were really very impressive because you, apart from Newton, you had Hooke, you had Boyle, you had Flamsteed, you had Sir Christopher Wren, who was a good scientist in his own right. Uh, you know, you had this mass of people, all of whom were inventing things. And just a general spirit of, um, you know, we can do new things, entrepreneurship, if you like, although it wasn't that much applied to the business. And some of it was misapplied. They went over and took over the slave trade because they were just more aggressive and better at it than everybody else who was shipping slaves across the Atlantic. But most of it was applied usefully, and that was when there started being an internal takeoff. And without that spirit, um, I don't think you'd have got the uh, individual entrepreneurs that you got in the following century. What's interesting in your book is you suggest that between about sort of 1720 and 1760, there's a period of sort of Whig ascendancy. And you suggested that could have almost snuffed out what was to come, um, as had happened in, in, in other parts of the world. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Why, why, did, why did the Industrial Revolution, as you uh, put it, take a nap when the Whigs were in power? Well, it's interesting. The Industrial Revolution had actually happened before 1714, when the Whigs came to power. Because if you define the Industrial Revolution as, as steam engines, I'd be being simplistic about it, then it's not James Watt, damn it. It's Thomas Newcomen, the first steam engine that has moving parts and works properly and can be used for, um, uh, you know, widespread use. It's Newcomen's in 1712, mm -hmm. which is before 1714. And what's more, he got the distribution financed almost certainly by an extremely dodgy outfit called the Hollow Sword Blade Company, who were also responsible for the South Sea bubble. In so the, the venture capitalists of their day. They were indeed the venture capitalists, the private equity, the merchant bank, you can call them anything you like, like that, but it's a, it's a small group of people that's going out and trying to do deals. And one of the deals they did, or appear to have done, was to provide about 20,000 pounds to um, provide a marketing organization for Newcomen's steam engine. So it didn't just sit there at Newcomen's workshop in Devon, but they could sell up all over the country. And they had 110 of them sold before 1733, which doesn't sound a huge number, but they were big things. And that is actually twice the number of steam engines that France had in 1816. So steam engine capacity, we were 85 years ahead, which mm -hmm. is, you know, really kind of nice. And that's, you know, that's not any 
intrinsic superiority of the British. That's Newcomen and to some extent the Hollow Sword Blade Company uh, and the structures that enable them to happen. So, so then you, you have this period where things are slightly, they slightly stall because of the Whigs. Um, they stall because of the Whigs. There's no advance on Newcomen steam engine for 70 years. James Watts condenser in 1769, but uh, the first genuinely superior engine is 1776, when uh, they've had another invention, which is Wilkinson's cylinder boring machine, because machining tolerances in 1710 were unspeakably bad. And so um, the plunger only fit in the cylinder to about an inch or so if you had a 30 inch cylinder. And um, so therefore, I mean, a Newcomen engine basically is a thick fog of steam around it. But the, um, the difference between the Tories and the Whigs is that the Tories were rural, spread out across the country and were, um, although Anglican, primarily supported by the rural middle class and the artisan class the sort of upper working class in rural areas. Um, the Whigs were um, heavily concentrated in London and heavily concentrated in the moneyed interest, as they called it, which was the embryonic city of London. And with the exception of the Hollow Sword Blade Company, um, and indeed not entirely with the exception of that, the, the city of London were a bunch of crooks and spivs in the 1690s. I mean, the way that the British um, public debt market got going, the long-term public debt market. It was unbelievably expensive because they rigged it to do tontines and annuities and all sorts of things that 1690 financial technology couldn't, couldn't value. And so therefore they could rip off the buyers or rip off the seller, rip off the seller of the government being even more attractive because the Whigs control the financial industry, the financial parts of the government in the 1690s. And um, so the result was uh, British debt cost about 9%, whereas Dutch cost 4% at the same time. And Britain was already a better credit than Holland by the late 1690s. It was one of the reasons that um, William III went and conquered it. So you, you then have uh, this- anyway, so the, the Whigs with their city of London, um, bias took over in 1714 and they managed to convince Georges one and two to work with nobody but Whigs because William III of course was supported by Whigs but he was also happy to work with Tories and indeed he knew he had to in order to maintain broad public support if you have an entire Whig ministry the Tories sit there disgruntled getting drunk I mean if you know your Henry Fielding uh, Tom Jones Squire Weston is a classic Tory of the 1730s, 1740s, who's been cut out from all the interesting jobs for the last 30 years and is thoroughly disgruntled. Sounds like um, a typical Tory backbencher of today. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, certainly the Tory Tory was. Um, and um, so the Whigs convinced George I and II to work only with Whigs. Um, the Tories were thrown out in what Linda Colley calls a gangland quality of politics in 1714-15. Uh, 
uh, you then had weak governments for then after, which also clamped down on the working classes because they were damn worried that there was going to be a, a counter-revolution that would bring back the Jacobites or mm -hmm. bring back um, the old pretender. Uh, indeed, there was one in Scotland, but the old pretender was such a bad organiser, he didn't get momentum behind it. If Bonnie Prince Charlie had been around in 1715, my guess is that he'd have won because uh, the Hanoverians really weren't very solid at that stage. Mm -hmm. And so they clamped down on, on working class disaffection with things like the Riot Act, which is a, um, a 1715 piece of legislation um, where magistrates went and um, read the Riot Act to an assembly and then you could arrest them all. Well, that piece of legislation lasted 200 years, but um, so, it was definitely used for repression in the 1720s and 30s. So you have this sort of, in effect, an oligarchy, we call them the Whigs, but this oligarchy that um, captures control over political institutions. You can think, think of them almost as the sort of the, the, the remainers of their day. They're, they're Europhile, they're dependent yes. upon finance and dodgy deals on the bond market. They have contempt for ordinary... Um, stout-hearted, ordinary um, English folk. Anyway, eventually the oligarchy gets not quite overthrown. They get nudged aside with the arrival of George III. Now, we, we tend to, I'm talking to you from the United States, we tend to think of George III primarily through the prism of his disastrous colonial policy in North America. But tell That's us about, about the only thing he got wrong. <laughs> tell us about some of the interesting things he got right. Um, in in the late 1700s, early 1800s? Yes, well, um, the Whig oligarchy began to break up <coughs> before 1760 because uh, they went on having elections and dissident Whigs started opposing Walpole and they started opposing Walpole on a populist basis. And they were still part of the Whig party but they weren't repressive in the same way. The elder Pitt, um, you can't call him, I mean, you can call him an oligarch, but you can't call him a repressive oligarch mm -hmm. uh, because the, uh, the uh, patriot, his patriots were um, a populist movement. And then indeed uh, that was um, furthered by Bolingbroke, the previous Tory leader from way back in 1710, writing a thing called the idea of the Patriot King, which the young George III read because his tutor Butte was a toy. <coughs> and George III resolved to be a Patriot King, which meant basically giving everybody a shot at it, not having a single party government. And mm -hmm. so after 1760, uh, <coughs> you had elections that meant something. You had... Um, popular movements, you had the rural Toryism um, very strong in most governments, not quite mm -hmm. all, but most. You had short periods where the Whigs were still running things. And um, what that did was it, it, it greatly increased the pluralism of society and in geographical ways as much as any other. For example, one thing that sprang up around 1760 was the country banks. Finance had been entirely a London operation uh, in the first half of the 18th century. And to some extent, the bankruptcy after the, uh, well, South Sea Company didn't go bankrupt, but the bursting of the South Sea bubble 
um, cause the same sort of reaction against entrepreneurship that you get every time a big bubble bursts. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had it in 1929, you had it in 2008, uh, you had it in 1987 to some extent. Um, and so um, the South Sea bubble bursting uh, um, mm -hmm. is a equivalent, is, sorry, is an addition to the Whigs in repressing entrepreneurial mm -hmm. activity for the next 40 years or so. But then in the 1750s, you've got all these little local banks um, all, dotted all over England, and they uh, um, grow up with the revival of Toryism. They're primarily Tory because they're local people. Yeah. And um, their advantage is that if you're an entrepreneur, sort of skilled working man type that's invented a, a better machine, you can get to these country bankers. They're not so a bunch you, of stuffy merchant bankers in London. They're locals. They're skilled working men themselves, essentially. So as well as a sort of political oligarchy crumbling, you have a dispersed system of capital allocation. You, you have local um, centres in the Midlands, in, in Norwich, in, in, in Leeds, which becomes sort of financial capitals where you can get the capital needed to make the investments to begin this fabulous new way of um, industrial production. Yes, and you don't have to go to London to get it. Yeah. And you don't have to deal with some snooty overpaid upper class merchant banker to deal with it because these local country bankers they're pretty prosperous but they're nothing more but local than local tradesmen mm -hmm. if you ever saw the <coughs> um tv series poldark he has a friend who's the country banker and mm -hmm. who eventually goes bust and they all get bailed out and poldark ends up on the board of the local bank but the portrayal of Cornish country banking in the 1780s and 90s mm. is, I think, pretty accurate. And it's all very much, you know, can I get a couple of thousand from this country banker for this new venture? In Cornwall, usually a tin mine, but elsewhere other things. So, so this is a, a successful model. You then have um, what you regard in, in your book as one of the, the sort of key moments for Britain's takeoff, and that is. Lord Liverpool, he's, he's um, I believe, a, a, an old Carthusian. Um, um, he, is... he is, you've got, there's two generations of Lord Liverpools. That's, right. a, you're, you're skipping 40 years doing that. Right. Um, the other thing you get in the 1760s, apart from the opening up, is the canal system. Right. And that is done by a Tory um, statesman called Earl Gower, or Granville Lucian Gore, as I think he's, if you don't allow earldoms, um, and um, he sponsors <clears throat> a local craftsman called James Brindley, who is an expert in all kinds of water technologies mm -hmm. and wood. He tries to build a wood Newcomen steam engine, um, probably machining the cylinders easier in wood, but the trouble is I suspect that putting steam through a wooden cylinder, the damn thing leaks, and so he never got it to work. But he did all kinds of projects. And then eventually, um, Garrow asked him to survey the route for Trenton Mersey Canal between the rivers Trenton Mersey. And that was part of a Brindley scheme, which would link all four of Britain's major rivers, 
the Trent, the Mersey, the Severn down towards mm -hmm. Bristol, and the Thames down through London uh, by a series of canals. And so everywhere in the Midlands, you'd be able to get products to market and heavy raw materials to producers infinitely cheaper. Canal boat could carry 50 tons mm -hmm. and uh, required about the same manpower as a horse and cart that could carry two tons. So this is a, some, in effect, a, a, a communications revolution. Uh, the use of waterways, it, it long precedes the coming of the railways and it yes. allows the internal costs of transportation to, to, to collapse to the point where you can get this sort of um, industrialization. Coal prices in the big cities, Birmingham, Manchester, halved. Um, right. You know, if the coal price halves, suddenly a lot of things such as Newcomb and steam engines, which used a hell of a lot of coal, uh, were more economic. Okay. And, to the point where and, um, okay. you couldn't power, power machinery with the Newcomb and steam engine because it had that rocking mo motion and they couldn't convert it to a rotary one. But then Watt came along first with the condenser that made the steam engine more effective. Then Wilkinson made him a cylinder with the um, machining type because he invented a boring machine to bore cylinders, which was itself water powered. And then um, Watt figured out the, what they call the sun and planets gear Okay. that made a rotary steam engine that came on the market in 1783. Okay. Now, moving away from sort of the, some of the technological innovation and the communications changes that are happening, talk specifically about the Liverpool administration. What was it about the Liverpool time in office that really got the Industrial Revolution to take off in, in Britain? What, what was it unique about Liverpool's time in office? Yes. Well, you'd, you'd had statesmen who understood what was going on uh, from about the 1760s. Gower was uh, in the cabinet from 1767 to 1794, and that's more important than it is now because the cabinet now has 30 members. In Gower's time, it had nine. And so uh, he was possibly a, a bad influence on the American War of Independence, in that he thought Britain could win it and they should take a firm hand. But on industrialization, he was completely sound. Having sponsored the canal system and done a lot of it on his own estates, he had an iron foundry called Lily's Hall, for example, which existed as a steel manufacturing company until it was nationalized in 1946, no, 49. And uh, then contemporary with Gower was Liverpool's father, Charles Jenkinson, who was um, an Oxfordshire country Tory who became Butte's secretary in 1762. He was one of the young Tories brought in by Butte. And that enabled him to make friends with George III. He became controller of the accounts for George III's mother, Princess Augusta, for a few years. And he was then a sort of man behind the scenes for the next um, 30, 40 years, gradually rising up the system. He was secretary at war in the last years of Lord North, to whom he was quite close. And um, then he was president of the Board of Trade from 1786 to 1804 under Pitt. Um, and Gower and 
Gow and Jenkinson were between them instrumental in getting Pitt into power. You had to get enough political forces behind him to beat off the Fox North Coalition. And so um, the ideas behind industrialization, Adam Smith, but not taking the more extreme um, tenets of Adam Smith too seriously, was um, already there in Liverpool's childhood. I mean, Liverpool read Adam Smith as a teenager. Um, Pitt read it as probably also a teenager because he was so young when he got the job. Jenkinson read it at 45 and was therefore perhaps a little more cynical about it. But nevertheless, they'd all read it. They all understood it. And so even from 1783, when Pitt took over, you had a government that understood industrialization. And Pitt made a great budget speech in 1792 that described what industrialization was doing. But the one thing lacking is he didn't say that it was a process of technological change. Mm -hmm. He said it was capital deepening. In other words, the amount of capital for the output of the economy was increasing and that that was causing the greater wealth and greater efficiency. And it was only Liverpool a generation or half a generation later that said, no, 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 it's technological change that's doing this. It's the machinery, it's the steam engines, it's everybody inventing new things. And um, so in other words, you had <coughs> quite a good understanding of what was going on from the 1780s onwards. And certainly Pitt had it and Jenkinson had it. And then Liverpool made the second leap to say, no, technology is what we've got to have to make the industrial revolution work. But they were all resting on a basis that had things like uh, rights of private property. Private property was far more important to Lord Liverpool than to any modern statesman. He um, gives speeches about how important it is. And it's not a question of the landowners keeping their property. It's a question of uh, if you start something as an ordinary working man, you've got to be able to make the profits out of it. You've got mm. to be able to um, get rich from it and be sure that somebody richer than you or more politically powerful than you won't steal it from you. Mm -hmm. And that was something that other countries didn't have. And Britain only got after the restoration more solidly in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the patent system dates back to the statute of monopolies 1624, but it only became what we understand as the patent system in Queen Anne's time when they said you've got to provide a specification of what your patent is about. You can't just write general blather and say that's a patent. It's, it's a, a, a monopoly granted on the basis of innovation rather than the whim of a yes. ruler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and from Queen Anne's time, it had to be innovation. You had to say what the innovation was yeah. and demonstrate that it was innovative to the extent you could. Tell us a little bit about the Victorians, because the Victorians have this image of being... Um, you know, the high Victorians have this image of being um, very entrepreneurial, you know, the Industrial Revolution at its, at its, at its most um, prominent. But is there a sort of slightly counter argument that actually the Victorians started to unravel some of the secrets of Britain's innovative success? I think it began to decline then. And um, the key factor in some extent is, are you aiming for a high wage economy 
or low-wage economy. Mm -hmm. Because Liverpool, when he put in the Corn Laws in 1815, he said this is not an attempt to screw the industrial working classes. It is um, the industrial working classes would rather have their current high wages and a high price of bread than to be driven down to the level they'd be driven down if we allowed completely free imports and British agriculture was uh, devastated because um, the agricultural workers, of course, if you allow completely free imports, would all be laid off, uh, put out of a job and pushed down to the minimum possible subsistence wage. Thomas Malthus was an advisor on the Corn Laws. Um, and uh, that would itself push down industrial wages. Whereas if you had the Corn Laws, the agricultural workers would do all right. And that would mean there was no huge push of ultra cheap labor undercutting the industrial workforce and they would um, benefit accordingly and have decent wages. And uh, that was the way it worked for the next 30 years. And then Peel abolished the Corn Laws and basically said, well, you know, the workforce benefit by having cheap corn. Well, yes, they do, but the agricultural part of the workforce, which admittedly wasn't as big in 1846 as it was in 1815, um, is put out of a job and eventually British agriculture collapsed mostly after 1870. That's quite a counterintuitive argument because the orthodoxy is that actually the Corn Laws were bad for industrialization and getting rid of the Corn Laws was a great, you know, the moment Britain embraced free trade. But what you're suggesting is that actually what Liverpool and others did by putting the Corn Laws in place actually helped seed that, 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 that takeoff. Well, yes, because if you've got high labor costs, then that maximizes the benefit of labor saving technology of one sort or another. If, the reason why Russia never got the industrial revolution until years after everybody else is because they had serfdom, their labor costs mm -hmm. were close to zero. Mm -hmm. And so therefore there was no benefit whatever to having um, machinery. And indeed Catherine the Great passed um, what was called a NACAS in 1767 that said on no account should machinery be imported into Russia because it would put Russian serfs out of work. But actually Elizabeth I of England took exactly that same view. Um, powerful people have not always liked uppity merchant class people coming along with a new invention because it, it, it has all sorts of unintended consequences if you're if you're the emperor or the empress or the queen yes. um, or the king. Yeah. And, and indeed, the inventor of the stocking frame um, in England couldn't get a patent off Elizabeth I and was discouraged, went to France. And of course, there they had the only a typical French ruler of, in history, which was Henry IV, who was um, very much sort of enriched the peasants, which wasn't not something that French governors usually do. And he gave, um, what was his name, Law Low, something like that. Uh, um, wait a minute, uh, Lee, William Lee. Uh, he gave Lee a patent and Lee was able to manufacture uh, stocking frames happily in um, uh, Rouen, I think. 
uh, until Henry IV was killed in 1610. And then they immediately reverted to traditional French policy. And um, he uh, died in penury, but his brother took the technology back to England and started the um, East Midlands stocking frame industry, which lasted the next 200 years until new technology came along that put the stocking frames out of business. Stocking the, frames are what Ned Ludd was burning in 1779. Now, the, the, the Industrial Revolution then spreads initially to other parts of Northwestern Europe, eventually to Northeastern, what was to become the Northeastern United States. Um, and, you know, it, it spreads further in the late 19th century to Japan and, and, and eventually to Russia. And you could say that within our lifetime, it spread to China and even sub-Saharan Africa. Um, is that because property rights there have sort of caught up with the West? Or is it because there's a model that their rulers can, can follow to ensure that you get this process? Well, why did the Industrial Revolution spread? Um, was it necessarily, was that spread necessarily preceded by the spread of ideas and property rights? Or why did it spread? Uh, the, the property rights never entirely spread. Nowhere ever had property rights, maybe America. Uh, no, actually not even America, because poor loyalists. Um, but, um, the um, it was not so much the spread of property rights as the miserable fate of people who were uh, trying to do something that an industrial revolution had happened in in England. Uh, French textile workers are a sad story because they signed a free trade treaty with England in 1786, the Eden Treaty, and within three or four years, all the French textile companies were going bust because Britain already had the Arkwright um, stocking, uh, the, Ar the Arkwright um, frame, and was, you know, fairly well ahead, had at least two generations of textile uh, innovation and, and therefore much lower labor costs, even though the cost of actual labor was higher in Britain than in France. And so the French textile workers were put out of business. And that was one of the reasons why um, the French Revolution got such support because in the big manufacturing towns as they had them in 1790, um, they all hated the British and they hated industrialization that was coming at them. Mm -hmm. And then after 1815, uh, the same was true in the Holy Roman Empire, Karl Marx became a Marxist because the electoral bishopric of Trier was a thoroughly unhappy place after 1818 when he was growing up because he'd had all these little customs um, barriers that had been left over from the Holy Roman Empire. They didn't get the Zollverein until 1833, the customs union. And so therefore it couldn't export anywhere. It didn't have any technology. It didn't have any industrialization. And one industry after another, the blasted British were taking out its it, it, it's workers. So, of course, Karl Marx thought capitalism was a lousy idea. <laughs> Good, Martin, thank you so much for um, talking us through some of the key ideas in your book. Um, when, when was it published and how, how is it doing? 
Um, I think it's doing reasonably well. It was um, Lutterworth Press, March this year, and there's a paperback coming out in the autumn, in the fall. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time, and um, I'm really grateful. Great. Well, it's been great to be talking to you.